Welcome to another episode of Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by SmartLogic, a custom web and mobile development shop. This is season 10, where we are looking to the next 10 years of Elixir. We'll be talking with our guests about what the first 10 years might tell us about the future of Elixir. Hey everyone, I'm Sunday Mint, Engineering Manager at SmartLogic. And I'm Owen Bickford, Senior Developer at SmartLogic. And we're your hosts for today's episode. For episode two, we're joined by Corey O'Daniel, CEO and co-founder of MassDriver. Welcome, Corey. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I do have to say, before we dive in, I really do need to know if you ever mastered the hot to honey ratio, the spicy honey combo that you were looking for. Did you find the perfect duo? Yeah, so I um, I am a fan of very hot food, and I'm I'm generally not happy unless I'm crying a little while I'm eating. Um, so so <laughs> I go with a lot of hot. So I did it like where, where I'm at is about a tablespoon of clover honey to about a tablespoon and a half of crystal hot sauce, and that is that is perfect on some fried chicken. Owen's making this face right now. I don't know what this face is for. My mouth is already on fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for our listeners, this was a Twitter conversation. I think it was around the Super Bowl. I had a full bottle of Mike's Hot Honey in my pantry and then got a bottle of Mike's Hot Honey. It was part of a charcuterie kit. And so I was like, well, today's the day, I guess. I'm going to find out what this tastes like. And it was great. Fully wish I had opened up my bottle before. I think the hottest thing I've had lately is there's a food truck nearby and Tika chicken tacos. Those are... Maybe not the Tika hottest, anything, but they were yeah. kind of, they were spicy. <laughs> well, Corey, you might appreciate this then. I had a Hot Ones party in September. I fully plan on doing this as an annual event. We had wings and then we had the full current season lineup. I think it was season 18 at the time. We just went through it and I felt kind of bad because everyone who came over to my house left crying and don't normally invite people over for them to leave crying, but that was that was the event. It was great. <laughs> That's awesome. A long time ago, there was this restaurant where I grew up that had hot wings that were, if you finished them, they put your photo on the wall and you didn't have to pay for the wings. It was really nice. Mm. And they had the, I guess, the Scoville units of being maced. And so my Ooh. dad and I went there and we're like, well, we got to try this. And we ate them all. And the photo of us on the wall, like our faces are puffy and we're crying. And then we went back and they had one that was twice as hot. And I'm like, we got to try this. I finished one and my dad blacked out at the table and I thought I'd killed him. Uh, so uh, that, was, that one's a freaky one. He just faced first right into his plate. And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> wow. Okay, change everything. We're, we're making the name of the episode, How Corey Almost Killed His Dad. And then just moving on. So, I mean, speaking of fun life stories, can you go ahead and tell us, you're the co-founder of Mass Driver and you're the CEO. Can you tell us what Mass Driver is and how that kind of concept came about? Yeah. So MassDriver is a tool for visually managing cloud infrastructure and applications. Our idea is to try to land somewhere in between a pass and the full power of the cloud. And so what the platform allows you to do is connect together infrastructure, provision that infrastructure, and get back to writing software. But on the underside, we're not like a code generator like some of these other sites out there. It's actually a package manager for infrastructure as code and applications. So when you're connecting stuff together, you're connecting actual software written by somebody who is an expert in whatever that piece of cloud infrastructure or software is. So the idea came from, I was actually doing consulting for Google a few years ago, and I've worked for a number of companies over the years in operations. And I got invited to work at Google at this weird 
niche where it's like, I know Elixir and Erlang and I know Kubernetes. And I guess there was a point in time where if you Googled those terms, that was the first thing that came up. And Google was migrating a really big customer to Google Cloud that was running Erlang and they didn't know what they were doing. And so they, somebody just Googled it and at Google and they were like, oh, this guy. And so somebody reached out to me and was like, you want to help migrate a giant customer to Google Cloud? And so I got the opportunity to do this. And while I was working with this company, I was seeing a lot of the same pains that I had as an operations engineer, small companies I worked for had, large companies I worked for had. And what I really wanted to do is make a way to easily take some of this commodity knowledge that operations engineers have and be able to give that to developers so they could move quickly, focusing on their use cases rather than like the ins and outs of a cloud API and Terraform and all that jazz. So is this, are we talking Docker, Kubernetes, or is it an alternative or an abstraction on top of that? Like what kind of infrastructure is this tying together? Yeah, so it depends. So like I said, it's a package manager under the hood. So like the, if like get into the nitty gritty details, it's a package manager and it's a cloud type system. So what we develop is the cloud type system. Anybody can add these packages and the packages essentially conform to one of these types. And so what that allows you to do is anybody can extend the platform. So if you go look at the platform today and you're like, oh, I want to run Databricks. It doesn't have Databricks. You can publish a Databricks package and now it supports it. Similarly, our application runtimes are extendable as well. So today we support Kubernetes on all three clouds and bare metal, um, VMs, Lambdas, app functions on Azure. Somebody is actually open source adding Databricks support to the platform so you can just push your notebooks up there. So we pretty much can run anything that you can put in an IAC tool. That's super cool. The reason that we want to talk to you today, other than the fact that, how many times did his name come up? Owen, like three or four? Was it Dave, maybe Lucia? We've had many requests from many guests, and we're going to fulfill these requests this season. Welcome, guys. But yeah, so we want to talk to you, Corey, because you were requested, but also because this is the future, the next 10 years of Elixir, and we really wanted to get your DevOps expertise on what the future of Elixir DevOps might look like. Learning about what your company does and the background about that is a really great jumping off point into some of these more nitty gritty concepts we're going to get into. Oh, and it looked like you had a question there. Yeah. So before we get to the future, I think it's good to start with the history of deployment with Elixir and Erlang. Going back, let's say Elixir V1 or maybe even pre-V1. How would you deploy an app then? How has it evolved over time? And I think maybe in a few minutes, we'll kind of get to like what drives you to think of MassDriver as a new solution or like a new company to solve this problem? Yeah. So, I mean, how have I deployed Elixir over the past, over the years? I am a big time Kubernetes proponent. Like even though like our product is designed to kind of meet people where they are and run it how they want to, like I run most of my stuff on Kubernetes all the time. I even develop locally on Kubernetes. And the reason I do this is like, not because I'm a fanatic, I am, but honestly, like I don't like learning stuff. I'm dumb. Like I'm a dumb old ops person. Like I don't like learning things. And it's like, I know the Kubernetes way. And it's like, it's the same on AWS. It's the same on GCP. It's the same on Azure. It's the same locally. So um, I've been working in Kubernetes now since she's say like seven or so years. So the first time I deployed an Elixir application that wasn't that Bashu product, that database, I can't remember what it's called, was on Kubernetes. So I've just been running Kubernetes and Elixir since I started developing in it. What's changed a bit is like it becoming container aware. So like when you originally put it on Kubernetes like seven years ago, it was not a nice neighbor with other applications. And so you'd have to like taint them and give them their own nodes and your node pools to run. So it wasn't taking RAM and CPU from other applications. But 
that's my go-to way of deploying it. Are you thinking of React? Is that the database? Yes, yes, okay. that one. Gosh, that's, <laughs> that's a trip down memory lane. This is one of many databases I've not personally interacted with. I've just heard it. So I listen to enough podcasts that I, it comes up, you know, <laughs> with like early yeah. folks, especially. So, oh man. <laughs> so, okay. Interesting. So like, and I kind of come at it from a, from the other angle of like kind of just recently getting into Kubernetes. I wouldn't say I'm like an enthusiast. I'm interacting whenever I need to, but I definitely enjoy Docker for like local development and kind of, you know, using Docker Compose to to simplify that thing, or like getting onboarded on a project. I see the value in Kubernetes of having a reproducible or configurable kind of deployment system through code that's kind of configuring all of that. I hear some debate within the community about Elixir. Is it a good fit for Kubernetes? Is it a bad fit? I don't think there's maybe a clear answer. I think it all depends like everything else, but yeah, what's your thoughts there? So in all conversations, Kubernetes, do you need Kubernetes? The answer is like a resounding no. You can run whatever you want on a Raspberry Pi, sure, right? But like at some point in time, there becomes like operational complexity of things, right? There are bus factors in your business. I have one ops person. I have one person who knows how to deploy this, right? This is why I like Kubernetes. Again, like I, I don't like learning new things. It's like I got something that works. I'm, I'm fantastic. I'm just swinging this hammer everywhere, right? So when I think about deploying it, it's like, okay, could I put it on a bare VM? Sure. I can, I can absolutely run on a bare VM. What's the benefit of that? Like, what's the benefit of running things on like bare VMs nowadays? You don't get bin packing. So you're actually, you're renting something by the minute and you're not utilizing it to its full extent, right? Resource utilization isn't great on VM versus running something on Kubernetes where you can bin pack it together, right? I have to solve logging. I have to solve metrics. I have to solve secrets. I have to solve all these things. So I start doing it in bespoke ways, right? So my team's figured out, oh, we've dialed in this perfect ops way of configuring all this stuff to run on VMs and auto scaling groups. It's great. Person that knows about that leaves. Now the next person that comes in has to figure out how you did it versus, hey, last company I worked at, we were using Kubernetes. This is all the same. It's just some configuration. They may change from, you know, one cloud to the other, but the API remains the same. And like that is the truly appealing thing of Kubernetes is that there is this standardized API that is easy to extend that you can just take that knowledge with you. I can take it from company to company. I can take it from cloud to cloud. That's the thing that I really see as the valuable part. When you think about it that way, is Elixir a good fit for Kubernetes? Yeah, because you have this portable knowledge that you can take everywhere. You're not reinventing stuff, right? Like we want to spend more time writing software. As an industry and as a planet, we need to spend more time writing software and less time operating it, right? And we spend a lot of time operating it today and not a lot of software developers have that deep operational expertise. And that's what I think we're really need to be focused on is like getting into this, like writing more software, less operating the software. And so I think you could do that with Kubernetes. And now there's going to be people that are going to hate that answer. And it's like, okay, yeah, Kubernetes is hard. It's like, yeah, if you're running cops or you're doing Kubernetes the hard way, sure. But like the cloud's taking care of most of the control plane for you. Auto-scaling groups are the same auto-scaling groups in Kubernetes as they are in ECS or with bare VMs in AWS, right? So it's like, yeah, there's some operational burden there, but is it any more than the operational burden you have of figuring all this stuff out yourself and reinventing the wheel? I'd say no. So speaking of the wheel, how has the idea of DevOps changed over the last 10 years? Like, what was it 10 years ago versus what is it today? Yeah, so... It's funny. It's like, what is it today? I'll tell you what. If you ask Reddit, am I allowed to cuss on this podcast? 
We can oh, believe it. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. If, if you ask, sorry, you can cut that part out. If you ask Reddit, I have no idea what the fuck DevOps is, which I think is funny because nobody on the planet does. Like, And I feel like there's some serious revisionist history going on with what DevOps is, right? So it's like when you think about it, like early 2010-ish range, right? Like actually made sense, I think, for a brief point in time, right? So it's like, okay, there's data centers and then there's operations people and there's software engineers that want to run stuff in these data centers. And it's all hard. You got gray beards that are mad and they don't want to change anything. Cloud comes around. It's like, oh, it's easy to go make an EC2 instance. It's easy to make a queue. Like, let's tear down these barriers, like get rid of these silos and allow people to own and operate the code that they write. And that made sense when our applications were simple and our scale was simple and our compliance was simple and our security was nothing. But like in today's world with compliance and security and how complicated our apps have gotten, that is for two reasons. Way one, global audience, right? And like the demand of your apps quickly. And two, the clouds just made it complicated, right? So with all of this stuff, we're shifting a lot of accountability left nowadays, but we're not shifting the expertise with it. We're saying, oh, you're, you're the engineer, you like keyboards? Well, go do some operation stuff, even though that's not your expertise, right? My lawyer doesn't do my taxes. My taxes, you know, isn't my lawyer. They both work in law and legal stuff, right? And so I think it made sense then that where you get to today is like, there's just too much stuff for an engineer to be effective at operations and security and writing software when their job is to ship features to make the company money. And so where you see DevOps today is there's these multiple camps now of what DevOps is. Some people are like, oh, it's engineers, they do everything. And some are, oh, well, this, when we said tear down the silos, we didn't mean you did both jobs. We just mean we were better at communicating. And it's like, that's, revisionist history. And then there's people that say like, there's a DevOps team. And it's like, there's not a DevOps team. There's an operations team and there's an engineering team. And that's fine because what you have there is expertise. And I think calling an operations team, a DevOps team does discount the expertise that they have in operations. Cause it sounds like this thing that everybody can do when there is actual deep expertise in, in operating systems. Well, what you said just there has me jumping around in the timeline a little bit, because if you could envision a future in 10 years and there's an Elixir engineer somewhere just kind of fiddling around, IEXing it up, and they say, what do I need to know about DevOps to be an effective Elixir engineer? What would your answer be? What do you think the answer is in 10 years? Yeah, I mean, in 10 years, same answer it should be today. You shouldn't have to know much, right? I was actually having a conversation with somebody earlier today about this. When you look at, let's just take, put Azure and GCP aside, just talk about AWS. How do you just run a Docker container on AWS? I just want to host and a port run this thing. There isn't an answer. It's, it's like you go set up Kubernetes or you go set up ECS or you go build a VM and an auto scaling group and a load balancer and you run Docker in it. Like there's not a way to just like run a container, right? And it's like, we've got to this point where we feel like we have dev prod parity, right? It's like, oh, I got this container locally. It's the same-ish container that I'm going to run in the cloud. But like, that's not actually how we operate our software. And I think for engineers, like a good platform, whether it's a cloud or a pass, exposes this minimalist layer where it's like your engineers, if they want to just think about code, they should have that Heroku get push model. It's like I pushed my code and now it's running now, right? That's where I think everyone needs to start moving. And you see a lot of passes there and that's great. There's a lot of opinion around the way they do things, but the cloud's not quite there. And that's kind of the gap that we're trying to bridge is like, let you get any of these runtimes that you want in the cloud are the very simple push model. That's what 
DevOps fully realized is like, I don't have to think about this stuff as much. Like, why do we care about this? As long as my application can run, I got the services that I need from the cloud and nothing's waking me up at 2 a.m. because it's broken. The worst. It's a simple wish list. How many people need to click a button to get the thing into production, right? Yeah, I guess that's up to your compliance auditor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what kind of business are you, right? So... Part of this, I think, so I think I'm trying to like get in the mind of our listeners as well. In the Elixir space, I think it's more common than some other languages to, to build a monolithic application as opposed to either services or microservices. It seems like microservices are kind of going out of style. You're willing them so, Owen. You're willing them so. I keep my ear to the ground. I'm happy to not live in a super microservices world. We're not going to avoid it. But monolith versus service or microservice, does that impact... The feasibility of Kubernetes, does it alter like the tech you want to use for deploying your apps? I don't think so. Again, if you have that, if you have somebody that has today, if you have somebody that has that Kubernetes operational knowledge to get you there, I, I don't think it matters if you're a monolith or a microservice. And microservices are obviously going to get more out of it because you're making more changes. There's more stuff connected. But I think the key thing there is, is like, what expertise do you have on hand, right? Like if you have a team of five people, you got a principal engineer, you got four people out of boot camp, and nobody's run in the cloud before and you've used Heroku, you should probably deploy to Heroku again, right? I don't think that anybody should be going out there and jumping into a, a pool full of things they don't have expertise with if they're trying to just ship software functionality sake. Now, if you have some Kubernetes expertise or if you have experience with how to use it or you have the time to learn how to use it and deploy and manage something there, it's like a monolith runs great there. And, and again, the nice thing and the reason I always lean towards this is it's the knowledge that you have that's portable. Great. I run my model up on here. I pushed it up in a deployment or a stable set, whatever it is. My application's running. That's great. When I'm ready for microservices, nothing's changed. I just make a new deployment or a new Helm chart to ship this thing, right? I don't have to go, oh, yeah, you know, that model is on a VM and we had an agent installed on it that we installed with, I think, Ansible. And then like somebody SSH'd into it and they added, you know, the logging agent and then we added a data dog agent, right? Being able to have like a reproducible way where you say like, this is how my cluster ships logs someplace. This is how my metrics get shipped someplace. And you put an application in it and the rest of the operational stuff just starts happening for you. Like that's where you really start to reap the benefits of it. Kind of going back to, I want to push some code and I just want to see it in production, right? So... Mass driver, do you have extensions or plugins or maybe webhooks for hooking into CI so that like I push a commit, let's say my PR gets merged and let's say I'm using GitHub Actions, Circle CI, you know, the list goes on. Does mass driver hook into that CI pipeline so it can automatically deploy as long as everything is successful? Yeah. So we have like one like tenant that we've leaned into since creation. There's a couple, there's like a couple of like real strong things that we believe in. And I'm going to say this one and everyone's probably going to think that it is dumb, but I challenge you to think about it a little harder. So everything that we do in MassDriver, we do it via our CLI. So we're API first, GraphQL API in Absent. And then we have our UI where you can draw stuff, but everything's API first. So we have a CLI tool. If you want to do the GitOps model, or you have a team that's doing GitOps model, you can do that with MassDriver. You generate your configurations and push them using our CLI. And the cool thing is, if you're looking at the diagram, all of a sudden your diagram, your lucid chart of the world gets updated with the truth of what's happening. And you can also make a change in the chart and that gets synchronized back, right? So you can definitely tie it into your Git pipeline. Now, we what we don't do is 
We don't do webhooks. And the reason why is everything that we do in MassDriver, we do it without ever having access to your source code. So even though like we do a lot of wild stuff like auto-generating IAM roles and policies, injecting database credentials like directly into the runtime of your application, we never get access to your source code. And like, it just blows my mind that we just like really give any company access to our source code nowadays. I feel like it's a thing that like doesn't even phase people anymore, but every once in a while, you'll see one of these vendors that you've OAuthed and given access to your GitHub and that something happens and all of a sudden there's a source leak for like 12,000 companies. And so we've made the decision to make it as painful as possible for us to make sure that we don't ever actually get access to source codes. The way that our builds work is in our CLI, we have this mass image command, and it is a cloud agnostic way of pushing and provisioning container registries across all three clouds. So if you've never set up ECR or ACR and Azure, GCP or Azure, if you do mass image push and you have essentially a credential reference, which ties it to your cloud account, we'll set up all the stuff behind the scenes and put your image in there. And so what we have the ability to do is we have the ability to schedule images. So like we never actually get access to your source code. We can just simply say like, okay, there's this image and they want to run it in a Lambda or this image and they want to run it in a Kubernetes. And we just do the coordination for placing that in the cloud, but we never actually get the access to your source code. I think part of what you said there kind of triggered in my mind, the thought of being either cloud agnostic or multi-cloud. This is not something I've had to contend with yet. You're making up words now, Owen. <laughs> multi-cloud? <laughs> well, I'm wielding some words that I... I have some understanding of, because I listened to, you know, a couple podcasts again. But so let's say, well, I guess to back up a little bit. So multi-cloud is a real thing, right? So it's like there's AWS, there's Google Cloud, there's Azure, DigitalOcean. Those are the ones that I'm most familiar with. So if I deploy my app today and I'm on AWS and let's say there's an AWS outage, the idea of multi-cloud is maybe you deploy to AWS and Google Cloud or, you know, end number of platforms, that way one outage does not take your entire site down. So the platform like MassDriver is part of what it's doing, kind of giving you like a more kind of cloud agnostic configuration where you can either switch platforms or deploy to multiple platforms at once? Yes and no. So when we actually originally thought of the idea, we were like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make what MassDriver originally was way back in the day was a cloud agnostic API for managing infrastructure. And what we found out really quickly was if you look at the cloud, a network or a Kubernetes cluster, and you look at it in an agnostic way, you get the most watered down, boring, feature-less version of that thing possible. So I see a few companies doing this today and it's like, it's always silly. It's like, okay, I want a network, but then you'll see there's an attribute and it's like AWS. It's like, oh, here's how I need it if it's on AWS. And so it's like, they immediately step out of like cloud agnosticism, right? So like we, we pivoted away from that, but at the same time, like the answer is still a bit, yeah, because there's a few other ways that you go multi-cloud, right? So what we actually like to push people towards, and this is something that's hard without something that acts as like a meta cloud that handles a lot of like the boring tedious IAM and all the other not exciting service parts of the cloud is hybrid cloud. Our industry, I feel like we're a bit bullshitty. We love to say like, we use the right tool for the job. We don't do that. We use the last thing we saw on a Medium article, right? We are hobbyists. Like we say that to like give like product managers like good vibes, but we're like, shit, man, I just saw this in Hacker News. I can't wait to put it in prod, right? I mean, you get to the cloud, like that falls apart because there's just so much stuff to deal with. So you get to the cloud and you're like, we're serving models. And it's like, what are you using? SageMaker. You're like, oh, why? Because we use AWS, right? When you get to cloud services, you don't 
see many people using the right tool for the job. They use whatever tool is available in the cloud that they're on or an open source tool, right? What we have is a lot of customers that are doing hybrid cloud. And the really cool thing is on your mass driver canvas, the cloud, the, the canvas itself is cloud agnostic. You can put multiple clouds on one diagram and provision, but they'll each be in their own cloud and their unique things. You see, this is an S3 bucket. I see that this is a GCS store, but I can do things like have, you know, my view of the world as an application developer. Maybe I'm running on Kubernetes and I'm using RDS, Postgres, but I'm calling some pub sub thing in GCP for some reason. It's like I can have that in one canvas that I see, but it's on it's on different clouds. So getting people towards like hybrid and using the right service or service that makes more sense. True multi-cloud, I mean, where you come from a language where we like to talk about nines, like every extra nine costs you money, right? And it costs you a lot of money, costs you a lot of time. The true source of like idea of like multi-cloud is really expensive, right? Like it's it's hard to do. We can deploy our applications in multiple clouds. What about your data, right? Are we like, are we gonna do everything as a stateful Elixir app and just like distribute it around their cluster? Or do we need to use Postgres? Uh-oh, we're using Postgres, what do we do? It's like, okay, well, you can have RDS, which is great. It's super highly available over in AWS. And I'm also gonna deploy in GCP. And if AWS completely goes down, I'll switch over to GCP. It's like, okay, like that's a lot of engineering effort like, are you the 911 system or are you selling t-shirts? Nobody needs to buy your shirt if AWS is down, right? Like, I feel like we don't take a lot of like reality into things when we build stuff. So it's like, okay, let's say you're 911, AWS is down, people still need ambulances. It's like, okay, well, it's like, how are we, now it's like every single data store becomes a conversation and a problem to solve for multi-cloud. It's like, okay, how do we do Postgres across AWS and GCP, replicating this stuff and being able to fail over a master, right? It's like, that's... That's a lot of engineering effort. Can you do it? But who is doing that with data stores at scale that isn't super critical, right? Where it gets to be interesting though, is again, not to ride the pirate ship of Kubernetes, but when you start to look at your applications, like if they are running on Kubernetes, and this is one of the things we design particularly Kubernetes applications around in MassDriver. When you put an application in MassDriver, what you actually do is you send us a bit of metadata about your app. And one of those things is a list of your cloud dependencies. So you say like, I'm dependent on Kubernetes, I'm dependent on Postgres, I'm dependent on Redis. Our cloud type system goes, ah, I know that Elasticache is a Redis. I know that RDS is a Postgres. I know that Aurora is a Postgres. And so it lets you design your applications the way we think of them as software developers. Ah, I need Postgres, Docker installed it locally and it works, right? That's what we try to do with Kubernetes applications in particular, let you focus on what your application needs. So we have customers that do have, you know, their application, it's configured to run on Kubernetes. And what they can do is they can deploy it into their customers' accounts. And so now their customers can actually get data locality. They get their compliance security. It's inside their VPC. But our customers have to write their application once. They have one way of describing the IAC and they can provision it into other people's accounts and actually get that like operational data and observability data back. So that is like the one way that we still kind of do Cloud agnosticism is like, okay, yeah, if you want to be able to package your application and sell it to multiple people, if we package it in Kubernetes, that makes it really easy to do. So would you say that that would be something you hope that Kubernetes will change in the future so that future Elixir developers or our listeners might be able to package their stuff up faster, deploy faster, kind of all of that? You've definitely touched on things that you hope to see in the future, but is that the one big thing? 
Yeah, I think so. And, you know, it's actually, it's really funny. All of our apps are different, right? There's a ton of stuff inside of them that you can pick how to configure. But, you know, I feel like when you look at like a lot of what we do, it's like we, we do copy and paste a lot from Stack Overflow, right? And we do copy and paste a lot from like other things that we find on GitHub, right? And so it's funny, the view of MassDriver was built by operations people. Originally, you start your network and you build all your infrastructure up and put your apps on top. And so we've kind of shifted our approach where now you publish your application and we actually have this recommendation tool that can recommend and generate infrastructure based on your de dependencies and it can kind of generate your entire tree of infrastructure. Switching this idea, focusing more on the application, we're trying to go and build a bunch of, essentially, I said earlier, our runtimes are open source and extendable. Anybody can write them. And so we're writing very framework specific runtimes right now. And a lot of those are in Helm. When you get into Node, like you know, we'll do like a Lambda specific one for Express or a Lambda specific one for Nuxt or Next or whatever, right? But it's funny, I'm going through all of my old Phoenix and Elixir apps that I've deployed at five or six different companies. And I shit you not, like I got them all, I got all the charts and I diffed across all of them and they were almost identical. Over like seven years, not much has actually changed in how I package an Elixir application to ship it to Kubernetes. Like there's some secret stuff. There's like a weird cloud config thing here, some environment variables, but like the gist of it is, is like, ah, oh, there's a service, there's an ingress, there's a deployment, there's some secrets, right? Maybe if I have a stateful application, I got a stateful set, but like the configuration is really funny. We're reaching a point where it's like, there's a real similar way of running a particular framework, especially on a Kubernetes cluster. And so that's what we're trying to do is build these Helm templates that are generalized enough that it's like, this can run a Phoenix app. Pretty much whatever your Phoenix app is, you put it in there, it's going to run it. If you get to the point where it's like, ah, you've left that 80-20 use case, you can fork it and modify it. But like, that's the power of the platform. If you don't think about it when you need to you fork it and you can extend it, publish it back into our package manager and fine tune it. So I think a lot of applications can get there though, especially, you know, ones that aren't super, super niche, right? Yeah. And when you say, I mean, it's interesting that you looked at your projects over the last seven years and it hasn't changed. Although at the same time, I'm not that surprised because you are the same person. Like, yeah, you might look at your code in six months, be like, who the F wrote that? Oh, it was me. You know, like that's everybody, right? But it's not terribly surprising to me that the way that you package up your projects doesn't change if there is not much to change about it. But it, it does beg the question, does everyone do it the same way that you do? If you compared your seven years to, to Dave's seven years, to Owen's seven years, to Dan's seven years, you know, just turn out names, would it look the same? I think they probably look pretty similar, right? So when you think about packaging things up in Kubernetes, right? It's like, it all comes back to that API. There's a standard API in Kubernetes. You can extend it and add other things to it. But the core of what an application is, it's a deployment or it's a stateful set. It's either you know stateless or not, right? There's a service, there's a way of routing traffic to it and ingress. So it's like, you have a lot of these high level objects and then those configurations change and that's fine, right? Like that's what we kind of exposed to the platform is like, what is your configuration? What are your environment variables? Which ones are secrets versus configuration? Where's your Docker container come from? The structure of that object doesn't change. That's the nice part about Kubernetes. It's not some bespoke bash script. It is a thousand different organizations saying, this is the structure of like how you lay out a deployment. Your values might change, but the, you know, there's a strongly, or there's this type system and this, this schema that describes like what it is, right? So. You don't have a lot of structural change unless somebody's added one of these extensions, right? So maybe somebody's added Prometheus or not, right? But this is where it starts to get funny into like the bike sheddiness of like software development. 
we like recreate a lot of stuff a lot of times. And it's just like, ah, somebody's like, ah, I went and worked on this for two years because I didn't like this one feature of Prometheus. It's like, why didn't you just fucking add it? It's one of these things where if you go and look at the cloud native compute foundation, like if you look at the landscape, there's like 20 different tools for, for doing metrics. And it's like, but like the one that's one that everybody uses is Prometheus. So if we looked at the way I collect metrics for my applications and somebody else for Phoenix might use something else, why does that matter? Why does it matter? Like, are your metrics getting to where you want them? Yeah. Is your application running? Yeah. Who cares if it's Prometheus or this other thing? That's kind of where our approach is. Give people the best one, the one that's winning, the one that everybody uses. And you're gonna have people that want this niche other thing, but it's like, okay, if you're like the tinkerer and you like to play with things, fork it and go play with it, right? Go add that functionality. But we're just going to focus on the stuff that gets people back to writing software and not worrying about the operational portion. So you, you mentioned a t-shirt company as an example earlier, and my brain since then has been thinking about a new startup where Sunday and I just sell Kirby versus Jigglypuff shirts. Oh my God, stop <laughs> it. So when we launched this highly successful multi-region <laughs> application, <laughs> it's going to run on Elixir Erlang. And I think I've heard people, not to decide Rellas too much, but like there are questions some people have who are kind of newer to Kubernetes. Are we losing anything with the Beam VM or Erlang specifically? Does that make it harder or does that kind of make some features kind of just not work? Does it change the tools that we have available to us when we're on Kubernetes? I don't think it does. But at the same time, I think this is one of the things that people are kind of maybe weirded out by when they first see our code bases. We do use Elixir. And I don't remember who said this a long time. So actually, I'm not going to say what I'm going to say because I know the person who said it last time got absolutely fucking eaten alive. I got too much going on right now to get Twitter hate. But I agree with that opinion that somebody else said about six years ago. I believe, it strong, I believe in it strongly. If you know <laughs> what I'm talking about, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We're deploying all day long. We deploy a bunch of times a day. We're auto-scaling, Right. Uh, we got demand, scale the thing up, none, oh, we'll scale it down. We we use serverless Postgres. We scale, our, our Postgres hits like zero in the middle of the night, no CPU, right? We are full on auto scaling the things, controlling our costs, right? When you think about that, and then you think about Elixir, stuff starts to get weird, right? Like we're talking about DevOps, right? And operations. And there's a lot of Elixir that is operations and DevOps, like in the code itself, right? It's like, okay, we're clustering our nodes. It's like, okay, so now you're talking about like finding each other on a network. You're talking about service discovery. Okay, hey, we're auto-scaling. Great, what happens when we go from one to 30, back down to two to 10, and like there's data distributed across this cluster. Now we're starting to write software inside of our software to move our data around. And so we don't use a ton of OTP. If it's in a library, we use it, but probably the extent of the most Elixir-y thing we do is we connect nodes so that when a notification comes out across our GraphQL subscriptions, that it hits people. And honestly, we're considering just switching to using Redis, just so we don't have a bunch of noise when the nodes connect and disconnect in the logs, because we're also log-free. The only thing we ever see in logs is nodes connecting and disconnecting. We're big open, open telemetry fans, so we just, we open hotel all the things. And you're saying that's not useful? That's not useful logs? That's the gist of it is like our, our application's stateless. And so it doesn't matter if something connects or disconnects. And it's really just noise. It's like, oh, something showed up in logs. Like we thought maybe somebody put in a frivolous logger or there was an exception. It's like, oh no, a node just disconnect. Who cares? It disconnected because it's shutting down. It should be disconnecting, right? Or, oh, it connected. Why is it connecting? Oh, we auto scaled up, right? So, you know, you know, I think that 
it doesn't necessarily impact the tools that are available, but I think that what it does give you is it gives you a different way of thinking about like your compute being commodity. Why do we have three instances running all the time? Are they running at 100%? Because if they're not, you're wasting money, right? You're paying for 100% of that compute, right? We just try to bin pack everything and get it down to as, as minimal amount of CPU time running as possible. And so that's one of the things that I think kind of goes counter to like a lot of things you'll typically do in an Elixir application where you do want to have state, you do want to have processes that you're pushing around. Like we, we don't use it at all. So boring app. We kind of touched on this, but would you say that in 10 years, an Elixir developer wouldn't need to know how to deploy their app and they should just use that service or that button or that Git push kind of thing? Are you standing by that one or is there kind of a little bit more nuance to that? I think that's where we need to get to. And here's why. I actually just wrote an article. Microsoft let me write a thought piece on the future of the cloud, which was an insane thing for them to do. But, you know, Bill's gone, so they're just doing whatever now. But there is like this existential dread that I have when I think about our industry. We joke all the time about like, oh, we don't know what we're doing. We're out here guessing. No, we're just copy and pasting shit off of Stack Overflow, right? Like if you go on Twitter, there's a million developers a day joking about how they don't know what they're doing. They're making $200,000 a year. My dad would have loved to have made six figures to not know what he was doing, right? And a lot of what we do is based on hobby, right? Like we like writing software. It's what we do after work. It's what we do at work, right? Like we're, we're, we're people that like to have fun. We're always learning. And that's why it's fine for us not to always know what's going on. But it's really funny when you think about what we are. We are extensions of a business. What we do is a tool that the people that know the business don't know how to use, right? Like that's like a woodworker coming in and saying, hey, I want to build a table, but I forgot how to use saws and telling somebody else how to cut some wood to design this table. Like that's what modern businesses are today. We have product managers, business side, like thinking through how the thing works. And then they come over. It's like that scene in office space. They come over, they tell the engineers like what they need, right? And we go and build it for them. Where this starts to get worrisome is the average tenure for a software developer is like 18 to 20 months. Like we constantly hop. Why do we hop? Because Nobody gives us raises. And if you hop, your salary goes up 10 to 20%. And nobody was a 3% raise, right? And so we're hopping around. And a lot of people hop from industry to industry, not getting like deep business knowledge, right? So where this starts to get freaky and like why I think we need to get to the point where things can easily be deployed. U.S. Department of Labor Statistics says that the software industry or the software role in the U.S. is growing at five times the rate of any other job. 70 years ago, there was one software developer on the planet. Today, there's more software developers than the population of Australia. The average software developer has less than three to five years of experience. And they're operating software. They're writing software, which is something they have to do because not enough people know how to write software that the experts and professionals in our industries don't know how to write software. So they go and get expert software developers to write the software for them, right? What's kind of worrisome about this is you only get operational knowledge from operating in prod. And that's why I was saying earlier, like, I think DevOps kind of discounts the operational expertise. It's not something everybody can do. I mean, everybody can do it, but we're guessing our way through it. And so what are we doing? So we're running, we're writing software, we're selling it to people, we're telling them we're professionals. And then we're like, I just copied and pasted some shit for how to secure this off of Stack Overflow. And guess what? My product manager just wants us to convert they're not concerned with the amount of time I'm spending securing and operating the thing as long as people can click the button and buy more stuff, right? So it's like the incentives of the business and software engineer do not align with operating and securing software well. In the meantime, 
8% of software developers in Stack Overflow's last survey have cloud expertise, but everybody's trying to move to the cloud. So less than one in 10 people know how to run this stuff effectively. In a world where software developers are growing at five times the rate of any other job, we're making more and more software developers, we're making less and less people, less doctors, less lawyers, less pilots, less everything else, because everyone's becoming a software developer, right? And so 10, 20 years from now, we need to know how, we need to know these systems that are being created by people that aren't going to medical school for eight years, but they're writing AI to cut somebody open, at least can operate the software securely, right? Like you might have a bug that cuts too far. That's fine, but like at least they're, like their healthcare data is secured, right? That's the thing that really worries me. We have too much stuff to worry about day in, day out as a developer. Like there's the business rules that I'm trying to process and figure out how to turn it into code so a computer can understand it. There's securing the thing, there's operating the thing. Like there's a lot of stuff. And at the end of the day, what I'm supposed to be doing is delivering value. And if I'm doing the operational part, I'm not doing the part of the job that I'm paid for. I'm not doing the part of the job that my non-engineering coworkers see. That's why we need to get there. The role of operations person is still very important, but they start to be experts in these different passes and cloud systems that know how to operate these things. And that's fine. Like that's where they should be. That's how I think dev and ops really should. The silos are fine. They delineate expertise and that is okay. So <laughs> that's my soapbox, Reddit. Every time you said somebody is operating software, you said it in a way that made me think of like a, a toddler operating a forklift. That's the image that came to mind. It's wild, right? We effectively have root access to every single one of our customers' cloud accounts, right? So like we, we do a, a painstaking amount of work in security, right? And it's just like, there are people on our teams that haven't worked in the different security. It's, it's really funny thinking about as a development and ownership and like letting people like move around their stack. It's actually hard to do that at Master because there's some stuff that's like, this requires so much security knowledge to secure this thing. This is one of the reasons that we lean so much into Otel. We have an entire part of our system that no human can access. And that's where like all of our credentials are actually running. It's equivalent of like the most air gapped thing you can have in the cloud. And we get some telemetry data out of it of what's going on. And that's how we debug it, right? That's what's important to us. Like, that's what we had to do to like get this system secure. And it's like, it takes a lot of effort. I don't know that if this was a company built by somebody who had a uh, an MBA that didn't care so much about security, that they would put as much on their engineering team to secure that system, right? But it's important to us. It's a part of our brand. It's very important that we don't have any sort of exposure. So like we go through all this pain to do it. Our banks, our healthcare companies, right? Like you see healthcare leaks I just had a bank recently just leak a bunch of my information. I was like, yay, right? And so like this happens all the time. And sure, it could be a mistake of somebody who's an expert, but we know that one in 10 people are experts. So it's more likely that it was a mistake of somebody that wasn't an expert. Yeah, there are a lot of admin password credentials in the cloud, hopefully fewer every year, but I think you're you're right. Like, more engineers, more problems, maybe. <laughs> maybe that's the way to sum up this entire episode. We could spend an hour on, I think the, the credential stuff sounds really interesting. We could spend an hour on just Kubernetes deep diving even further, but we've somehow already reached almost an hour. So before we wrap up, do you have any final plugs or any asks, anything you want to say to the audience before we go? Yeah. I mean, check out Master. We'd love to have people give us some feedback on it. And like I said, we're starting to lean more into the application side to make it easier for application developers. So we'd love some feedback there. We do have a deal for Elixir developers where you get $5,000 of Mass Driver credit. Then we also have just like a base level free plan that's free for life. So 
your first $500 of cloud spins never build. So we definitely appreciate any feedback there. We're trying to make it easier and easier for people to just focus on their apps, tell us what their dependencies are and get back to writing software. But yeah, besides that, put hot sauce in honey and put it on your chicken. I don't have a lot of asks. That's it. What's two things? I asked two things of you. <laughs> and that's full circle, folks. <laughs> full circle, right? Hot takes, <laughs> literally. So awesome. Well, we, we will have show links. We'll have links in the show notes for that $5,000 mass driver account. That'll be great. And yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Corey. And thank you to the audience for joining us. Thank you for sticking around. And we will catch you on next week's episode of Elixir Wizards. Elixir Wizards is a production of Smart Logic. You can find us online at smartlogic.io and we're at smartlogic on Twitter. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. This episode was produced and edited by Paloma Pachenik for Smart Logic. We'll see you next week for more on the next 10 years of Elixir. Hey, this is Yair Flicker, president of SmartLogic, the company that brings you this podcast. SmartLogic is a consulting company that helps our clients accelerate the pace of their product development. We build custom software applications for our clients, typically using Phoenix and Elixir, Rails, React, and Flutter for mobile app development. We're always happy to get acquainted, even if there isn't an immediate need or opportunity. And of course, referrals are always greatly appreciated. Please email contact at smartlogic.io to chat. Thanks and have a great day.